Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Great to be here with you, and uh, some some greetings from our church down in Southampton. They've been praying for you guys and praying for this morning, uh, so to send you their love. We meet in a cinema uh, in Southampton, right down by the marina. Uh, so we get to come out and look at million pound yachts and uh, the envy rises up. But uh, no, it's a, it's a lovely church and uh, it's great to be with you and to be able to worship with you and to speak to you. So as you know, my name's Chris, I'm married to Joe, uh, and uh, it was Joe that introduced me to Jesus, uh, so I've got a lot to be grateful for, and as well as being a great wife, she's the one who gave me that first indication that there was a God who loved me, and uh, you can't be more grateful for something so amazing that I am. Um, we've got four children, uh, Joseph, who's 18, Millie, who's, no, sorry, 19, Millie, who's 17, and then Connor and Jake, our younger sons, are 12 and 10. And uh, we live in Southampton, we're getting to love the place now. Uh, interesting, I didn't like it to start with at all. Uh, I remember reading the Lonely Planet Guide, and it says Southampton is a place to stop off on your way to somewhere nice. <laughs> but uh, now I love it, now I love the place. So. Um, we, I was chatting with my eldest recently, because uh, he's now left school and he's on to uni, and we were talking about school days, and I was remembering my own school days. Uh, and when I was thinking about my school days, one particular character came to mind. You see, for me, school was uh, boarding school. I went to boarding school age 11. And uh, as I was talking to my son about my boarding school days, this one particular character uh, popped into my head, and it was our matron in our boarding house, and her name was Maureen Fountain. Uh, Maureen Fountain was a fearsome and formidable woman. She was about five foot two high, and she was about the same across the shoulder. <laughs> Maureen Fountain, her hair was the most unusual hair you've ever seen. I mean, naturally, it would be very long and dark with kind of grey streaks in it, but no boy ever saw her with her hair down because she used to roll it up and perch it on top of her head and hold it in place with a few strategically placed knitting needles. She was a woman to be feared. She was. She wasn't. She, she could make her way through the dormitories, even at night in the pitch dark, with her nylon underskirts rustling. She was a silent assassin. See, one of the things that Matron hated above all other things was boys who ate food in the night. Now, of course, we all did. We all did. It was the unmentionable crime. But what we used to do, we used to destroy the evidence. So it was like a scene from The Great Escape. We used to put Mars bar wrappers down our trouser legs and shake them out when we went out to play football. <laughs> but um, on this particular night, we had a lad in our dormitory who went by the name of Ashley Whale. Now, Ashley Whaler was a, a quiet and sensitive lad, and his mum knew that he was a quiet and sensitive lad, so she used to placate him with food. And on this particular night, Ashley Whaler called us over to his bedside cabin. Lads, he said, come and look at this. And he opened up his bedside cabin, and there, inside his cabin, was a whole, large, round, family-sized Mr. Kipling's bakeway tart. <laughs> We'd seen it. We were drooling at the mouth. 
We were just waiting for the moment when Maureen Fountain would say goodnight, switch out the light and back out into the hall, and then the eating would begin. You've got to picture the scene, really. The dormitory was eight beds, four down one side, four down the other side, with a corridor down the middle. At one end was a door into another dormitory. At the other end was a door that went out onto the landing. So normally Maureen Fountain would switch the light off and now she would go onto the landing. <laughs> night, boy, she said. Oh, good night, Andrew. <laughs> Pretending to be exhausted. The light went out. And then, Ashley Whale uttered 12 words that are forever burned on my memory. Phew. Now that old bag has gone, we can scoff the cake. <laughs> Unfortunately, Maureen Fountain, instead of switching off the light and backing out into it, had switched off the light and was silently making her way between the beds. She rushed back to the light switch, she turned it on, she said, no you won't, I'll have that Ashley Whale, and she flew across and her ample bosom was parting all the boys that were trying to defend Ashley. She grabbed the still unwrapped whole round hard Bakewell family tart and she took it and disappeared with it to her flat. No one spoke. No one dared move. No one said a thing. A good five minutes later, as a mark of final defiance, one of the lads whispered, She'll stuff it now. <laughs> and eight unsatisfied boys drifted off to sleep. Well, the night passed, the days passed, the weeks passed, the months passed, in fact, the years passed, five years passed, and we grew up with Maureen Fountain in this, in this boarding house. And at the end, in our final term, she said, lads, I want to invite you for a party, a farewell party. Maureen Fountain, she has become our friend. So we all went. And Maureen Fountain, I've got to tell you, she had made a real effort. She had emptied, yes, emptied packets of pickled onion space invaders from the school tuck shop into green ceramic bowls. <laughs> she had three types of fizzy drink. Tizer, Coca-Cola, and Cherry Bean. She'd really made an effort. And so we sat and we whiled away the time with stories and our history together. And as we began to recount the memories of this particular night, the story of the tart in the night time. <laughs> Maureen Fountain, the strange grin on her face, stood up and went out into her lobby. And she came back in, carried Ashley Wade's whole round large family size back <laughs> Forgiveness was all around and we broke best of friends. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this. Maureen Fountain, we had always thought that she was the battle axe of all battle axes. Our enemy. But actually, she was a kind, generous, gentle kind of lady, actually. And a great influence on all of us. And it struck me that we often make judgments about people based on their appearance, don't we? 
As a nation, we tend to do that. I call it the Subo effect. So Susan Boyle, we're all watching, remember? We were all watching this ungainly, slightly strange looking lady appeared on the television and everybody thought, oh, this is going to be rubbish. Even Simon Cowell kind of went, and then she opened her mouth and began to speak and the whole nation went. Now it wasn't necessarily that we were amazed at the quality of her voice. I think what it was, was we all realised that we put her in a box. I think we all had judged her for her appearance, same with all the other ugly winners. <laughs> Didn't we? We make assumptions about people that aren't always true. And we also make big assumptions about life that aren't always true. I want to tell you another story, actually. And uh, this one isn't one from my life. This is about a story that Jesus told. Uh, and it's a story that Jesus told about people who make assumptions about life. Okay, this story involved two different groups of people. And both of these groups of people, some of you may recognise this story, uh, both of these groups of people began to build identical homes. And let's today call them the Smiths building over here and the Joneses building over here. And the Smiths chose for their location uh, to carve out side, side of the rocky hillside and to build their house on that. Whereas the Joneses were more into water sports. So they built their house down on a beautiful sandy outcrop by the banks of the river. Both building identical houses. And, uh, and, and life went on. And, uh, as they completed their houses, the Smiths would look down on their friends, the Joneses, over in the valley and wondered every now and again, have we made a mistake here? They're getting all the canoeing, they're getting the swimming, we're stuck up here on the hillside. I began to doubt, I guess, whether they built their house in the perfect location. And meanwhile, the Joneses were down here just loving life, you know, enjoying the warm summer days, playing around in the water, every now and again cooling off and just lying on the banks in the sunshine. Life was sweet for the Joneses. And both families were loving. And they both looked pretty content. And they both assumed everything would be fine. Until one day, one day in the early autumn, the sky began to cloud over. And a chill wind blew down the valley and towards the river. And where both families had been out enjoying a bit of late autumn sunshine, they realised that something was happening. The weather was changing and the first big heavy drops of rain began to fall. So both families quickly ran back into their respective homes. The Joneses ran into their home, the Smiths ran into their home. They got in, they took their coats off, they shut the door, they drew the curtains and they looked out relieved. Phew, we're in, we're safe, it's fine. They were both safe. Well, they both assumed they were safe. But things aren't always what they see. And we can't always assume that they are. You see, two identical houses were just about to have a major difference revealed. And as the rain continued to fall, and as the wind began to beat against both of the houses, a change began to be noticed. Because the stream began to rise. And the Smiths looked down on their friends, the Joneses, from their rocky hillside and looked as the stream was beginning to undermine 
the sandy foundations and they saw and they looked on with horror as the foundations and the woodwork began to creak and there was a smashing of glass and there was a creaking of timber and everything began to crumble and fall and then it was washed downstream. And the newspaper report the following day said that no bodies were found. All destroyed. Now I know I've embellished it a little bit, but that's a story that Jesus told over 2,000 years ago. And he told it for a very specific reason. He told it because he didn't want people to make assumptions about their lives in the way that these people made assumptions about their safety in their homes. He wanted to make a very clear point, and the point was this. Don't make the dangerous assumption that your life is safe if it looks good from the outside. Because you're not safe, don't assume. Okay, that's the message Jesus was trying to get across. Don't assume that just because it looks okay on the outside you are safe, because you are not. Don't assume. So how does this apply to me and you today? Okay, let's have a think about assumptions. Um, I've been doing some research, and uh, I often ask people questions when I'm chatting to them. And uh, I, I looked at some American research on a similar subject. And in both the US and the UK, the biggest faith assumption at the moment is this. Everybody has assumed, if I am good, God will allow me into heaven. You just got to ask people. Say to people, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they say, I hope so, I've been good. Or they say, no, not with my lifestyle. I had one girl who said to me, well, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I said, you seem very sure. Very sure. She said, yeah, I know. I said, how do you know you're going to heaven? She said, well, I don't swear and I don't bitch about bloody nobody. <laughs> But you see, we've made this assumption that if we live life okay, then we get to heaven. We've assumed that good people go to heaven. Bad people don't go to heaven at the worst, go to hell at the very worst. That's what we've assumed. Maybe today you've made that assumption as well. Maybe you've thought actually good people ought to go to heaven, bad people ought not to go to heaven. So ask yourself a question for a moment. Have I made that assumption? Do I know for certain what's going to happen to me when I die? Do I know for certain? You see, there's actually only one group of people in the room today that can be certain. There's only one group of people that can answer that question with a yes. Everyone else has assumed. Things aren't always what they seem. We assume good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And it's an assumption. You know, Jesus once said this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. So what Jesus was saying was that he was making it very clear, if you want to go to heaven, you have to come to Jesus. He said, I am the way to the Father, which is where... The Father is in heaven. So he's saying, if you want to go to heaven, you have to come to Jesus. That's what he was saying. 
Once you can't anything, you actually end up being like one of the Smiths, if you like, not the band of the Smiths, but the Smiths here that built their house on the rock. Because they built their house, their life, if you like, to change the metaphor, onto a really secure, strong foundation so that when the storm came, they were safe. See, when you come to Jesus, you're putting your life onto something very, very solid and secure so that when the storms come, actually you are secure. So you're like one of the Smiths building on a firm foundation. Now, when I finish what I want to say today, I'm going to invite you to come to him so that you can build your life on a strong foundation. I told you a bit about my life. You can see that it was on a very dodgy foundation when I was growing up. But when I built my life on Jesus, everything changed. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus today. And the way that you'll do that is very simply by responding to what I say, by raising your hand in the end, so that I know that you want to come to Jesus as well. And you want to build your life on something solid. I'm going to explain a bit more, but I'm letting you know now so that you can be thinking, am I certain? Am I secure? Do I need to do anything? Do I need to make a personal response? Remember what I said? If you want to go to heaven, you have to come to Jesus. That's what Jesus said. And the reality is, if you build your life anywhere other than on the rock of Jesus, if you build your life anywhere, it is bound to be insecure. And when things hit and when trouble comes, it is destined to be washed away. So, for example, some of you will have built your life on a career or a hope of career or a dream of career. And that will be what motivates and drives you. That will be what's decided your uni course. That will be what's decided your location to live. That will be your driving force. And you've built your life on that. But I want to ask you, what happens when redundancy comes? which is hitting so many people in our nation right now. If you've built your life on something that you think is secure, but it's not, you've made an assumption and you've built your life in the wrong place. Some of you will have built your life on your finances and your resources and your securities. It all bound up with how much you have, how many things you have. How good your telly is, how fast your car is. And if you've built your life on that, when recession hits and when we don't have the income and when our outgoings exceed our incomes and there's too much month left at the end of the money instead of the other way around, then we suddenly realise we've put our security in the wrong place. The reality is that most of you, like me, would have built your lives around yourself largely around your perceived needs. See, we're largely selfish, so we tend to build our lives around the things that we want. Our needs, our comforts. You see, when Jesus told this story, what he was saying, he was saying that anyone who builds their life on anything other than the rock of Jesus is in a very, very precarious situation. You know, Jesus had a word for people who built their life on things other than on him. There was a word he used. Do you know what that word was? Foolish. That's the word he uses in the Bible. He said, if you built your life on your career or your income or your things or your relationships, you are foolish. That's the word he used. The reality is that building your life on anything other than on Jesus is foolish because you've made no provision for the future. All of those things, money, possessions, careers, 
are not secure. Everything other than building your life on Jesus is like building a house on the sand. And when the storms come, it will be scuppered. Now, I'm not talking here, when I'm talking about the storms, I'm not just talking about the circumstances of life. You see, because whether you have come to Jesus personally or not, you'll still face storms in life. Those of you that were Christians will agree with me, won't you? You still face storms. Now, of course, you've got God with you in it, and he helps you, and he strengthens you, and he sees you through, and you've got to trust in him. But the storms don't go away when you uh, come to Jesus, do they? They're still there. They're still there, but you've got people gone with you. But I'm talking about a different kind of storm altogether. I'm not talking about the little storms of life. I'm talking about a storm that is coming, that none of us know the day on which it will come, but it will face every single one of us. And it will be a bigger storm that will cause such devastation that today I want you to be utterly certain, completely convinced that you have built your house on a rock so that you are secure when this particular storm comes. You see, Jesus, I said to you, didn't I? He called the people who built their life on anything other than him foolish. He also had a word for the people who chose to build their life on something solid and secure, him. And can you remember what that word was? Wise. Wise. Let me, let me ask you this. What would you like to have on your gravestone? Which of those two words? Chris Kill. Fool. <laughs> or do you want a wise decision to mark your life? You see, a storm is coming, actually. And the effect of this storm is it separates the Smiths from the Joneses. And this storm... As I say, a certain day in the future which we don't know, but every single one of you in my earshot at the moment will face this storm. And this storm happens on the day that you and I have a face-to-face, one-on-one meeting with Jesus himself. It's going to happen. Every one of us will have it. Whether you believe in him or not, you'll have this one-on-one. Just think about that for a moment. And as you stand in front of Jesus Christ himself, he alone will make a decision on whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. He alone will make that decision because he's the only one who's righteous enough to judge us. Now, back to our assumptions. Those of you that have assumed that because you've lived a good life and you don't swear and you haven't hurt anybody, Those of you that have assumed that that will be enough to qualify you for heaven have made an assumption, and a big assumption, because Jesus says nothing of that. He's going to make an assessment of your life. He will decide where you go, but it won't be based on your performance. Here's a bit from the Bible that Jesus himself spoke. Perhaps we could put these words up. This is what's going to happen when you have that one-to-one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the angels with him. He will sit on the throne in heavenly glory. All the nations, that means people, if you're a person, that means you. So all the people, if you like, will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Do you see what's happening? There. He's putting the sheep over here. He's putting the goats in a line over here. He's putting the smiths 
over here. He's putting the Joneses over here. He's putting the wise over here. He's putting the foolish over here. Two lines of people, similar looking, but with a completely different destiny. Just understand that for a moment. Because Jesus then communicates with both of these lines of people that will stretch as far as the eye can see. And this is what he says to the people on this side, the sheep, the wise. This is what he will say to them. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And they will go off into eternal life, into love, into joy, into peace, into music, into parties, into wine, into fun. You know, the biggest lie that people assume is that there are parties in hell and not in heaven. You know, my friend Pete, he always says to me, I don't want to go to heaven where all the Christians are. It's going to be boring. I want to go to hell where there's a party. And I had to say to him, Pete, there's no parties in hell. There's no friendship in hell. There's no love, there's no peace, there's not even beer. Whereas there's wine and banquets and parties and fellowship and love and joy and peace and God. Here, there's the absence of God. You imagine for a moment your life. Imagine all the things that you love about your life. What interests you? What do you love? Do you love music? Do you love friendship? Do you love health? Do you love your job? Do you love your family? Imagine all of that just going and disappearing. Everything that you love. Waking up one day and the loved ones aren't there. Waking up one day and there's no music. Waking up one day and there's no peace. Waking up and there's no friendship or love or joy. That's hell. It's an absence of God. God is not there. And everybody is allowed to be as selfish as they want to. Whereas over here is the presence of God. Here is friendship, joy, love, life, laughter. You see, this is what he says. He says to these guys, come, in effect, to heaven where I am, where it's awesome. To the goats. It's something of a different story. So I want you to understand this soberly. This is what he says to the goats, to the foolish, to those who have built their house on the sand. Depart from me. That's what he says. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then they'll go. They'll go into that utter selfishness. No love. No peace. No God. And the thought of that for me, knowing Jesus, horrifies me. Horrifies me to the core. The thought of not having God is too profoundly disturbing to consider. I want you to understand this. These two lines were not divided up by who had been good and who had not been good. You see, the decisive issue is not our behaviour. The decisive issue is our relationship to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Remember, he said, to get to heaven, you have to come to Jesus. Remember I said that. So we have to do that. We have to personally come to Jesus. If we too want to join this side, if we want to go from the, the Jones line, the goat line, the foolish line, the hell line, if we want to be translated into this line, the sheep line, the wise line, the smith line, the heaven line, if we want to be in that line, then our responsibility is to come to Jesus personally. Once we've come to him, we transfer from one line into the other, in effect. And our destination is different. And I'm going to just explain why. And then I'm going to invite you to swap lines, actually. I'm just going to invite the band to come up while I'm just rounding this up. Because I want to explain to you how you change. If you've sat here today, you've suddenly realised, you know, actually I have made some assumptions. I assumed that I understood what the Christian message was about. I thought that I understood what Jesus was. I thought that I understood that if I lived a good life and I was okay, I thought I'd be alright for heaven. But now I've realised that I'm not. I want you to listen very carefully to this, because this tells you how you go from being a goat in the foolish hell line. It tells you how you swap into this line and how you get eternal life, how you get joy, how you get freedom, and how you get eternity. Okay, to get in the heaven line, it's not about how good you've been. To get in the heaven line, you must be related to God. You must be related to him. God became a man. We call him Jesus. God came as Jesus. Lived on earth. Perfect life. Unlike yours or mine. Absolutely spotlessly perfect life. And then at the end of his life, he received a punishment by being nailed to a Roman execution cross. Now, you might want to say to yourself in that, this moment, why would somebody who has been perfect be punished? Because surely, in, a, in the law of things, you only get punished for the wrong that you've done. We all agree with that probably, don't we? We agree that, you know, Jimmy Savile should have been punished for the things he did. We agree that Alfred should have been punished for the things he did. They deserved punishment. Here was a man who lived a perfect life and never did anything wrong, and he's being punished. So you have to ask the question, why is he being punished? Well, can I explain to you, death itself is a punishment. Every single one of us are going to die. Yeah? The statistics are pretty good. One out of every one will die. And that death, what you may not have understood, is not just the decaying of your body, but it's the punishment that you and I get for rebelling against God, for doing things selfishly, for going our own way, for making assumptions. We deserve the punishment. You see, I did everything as a young man that was rebellious. And in God's sight, my life stank. But what you have to understand is this. When Jesus went to the cross, he was being punished, not for anything he'd done, but for you and I. Let me put it like this. Imagine this Bible represents your life. And these few pages here 
represent some of the things that you have thought about other people. And, and these pages here represent some of the things that you've said that you wish you could read back and that you regret. And these pages here represent some of the things that you've done in life, that if we put them on a DVD and put them up on the screen now, you would run out in horror. You picture those things? You've got those, do you agree that you've got some of this stuff? Yeah? Anybody perfect? No? Good. I'm amongst friends. The reality is we've all got a catalogue of stuff that we've thought and said and done. And the effect of that is that it separates us from God. Here's you, here's your stuff, your rebellion, your sin, your fallenness, your brokenness, your thought life, your words, your anger, your selfishness. And that cuts you off from a holy and pure God, a holy God. But the amazing thing is that when Jesus was on the cross, you see, you deserve punishment for all of this, but it says in the Bible that when he was crucified on the cross and when he was being punished, all of that stuff that separated you from God was taken into his own body and he dealt with it forever, forever. And look, that leaves you free, free to know God so you can come to him. That no longer needs to separate you because he's already paid the price. That means that when you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I am sorry for all of that stuff. I want you to forgive me. Please forgive me and come into my life and help me right now to know that I'm heading for heaven. And the amazing thing is, he does. He does. You see, for me, <laughs> the most bizarre thing happened to me I went along to a church just like this and I listened to a message not dissimilar to this and I desperately wanted to know Jesus. I wanted forgiveness. I wanted heaven. And so I said, yeah, I want that. And then I ended up chatting with the pastor and having an argument with him and walking out on my own. Still not knowing Jesus even though I desperately wanted to and I knew I needed to do it. And I was on the underground train in central London and I was sat on this train and I suddenly realised what an idiot I'd been. And I just said in that moment, all my pride kind of withered away. And I just said in my head, all right, God, if you are real, and if I really do have a catalogue of stuff, and if you really can forgive me, look, I am sorry, please forgive me, I want to know you. And you know, the beauty of that moment has never left me. Because in that underground train, somewhere underneath central London, God came to me. And all I can describe it as is I felt overwhelmingly loved. I felt loved. You know, I've told you about my history a bit. I've told you much. I've told you a bit. And a lot of that was because I didn't have a dad. And do you know what? As I was on that tube train, God spoke to me for the first time. And he said four words, never forgotten them. He said to me, you are my son.
You've got to deal with this stuff. Otherwise, if you carry it with you, you stay in the foolish one. You stay in the gut. You stay in the hell. I mean, for me, now looking back, it's a bit of a no-brainer. I don't know why I stuck out for 20 years. Because now I know what real life is. I would never go back. That's what I want to appeal to you for. The fact that this life that I live and the things that I get to do and the fun that we have and the joy, the joy of knowing all that stuff is dealt with. And actually, now I've got to turn to you. God, it's just too good. Don't let anything rob you of that. That's real love. That's real love. 